that's the fear is that if you can work that out how to sway someone or persuade someone through um, how information is presented or given to them then you can actually sway someone's opinion. And I think one of the lessons learned out of 2016 in the US, for example, was if you influence a narrative in politics, that influence gives you the chance to then influence the outcome of the election. Hello and welcome to Password123, a cyber podcast produced by UNSW Canberra. In this podcast, we explore a range of topics from the world of cyber and speak to some of the most influential figures in the InfoSec community. My name is Tom Sear, and I'm an industry fellow at UNSW Canberra Cyber at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Two and a half years on from the 2016 US election, the subject of social media influence in elections is still in the headlines. Today I talk to Andrew Hughes, lecturer in marketing in the Research School of Management ANU, about the recent election and how all Australians are potential targets of social media manipulation and marketing, but also how some political parties are surprisingly effective online. I'm here at the Museum of Australian Democracy, which in Canberra is known as the uh, Old Parliament House. And I'm sitting here with Andrew Hughes uh, from the ANU. And we're sitting in the, uh, the opposition whips office, um, which I'm sure might have the ghosts of uh, previous opposition leaders of the past. Um, who do you think might have been in this room? I'm guessing Paul Keating. For some reason, Paul Keating maybe. You're feeling Paul's presence? I am. I'm feeling his presence. I'm feeling um, very much antique clocks. Right. <laughs> well, there is that old clock up there, but presumably uh, is it in order for him to get uh, to the chamber on time. But... Yeah, it's still sitting set on uh, daylight savings times too. Like, look at that, if I'm oh. right. Yeah, it is too. There you go. Well, from stepping back to the past, uh, into the present and the future... Um, it's a nice we're, segue. <laughs> we're in a new frontier now of um, <laughs> politics. And how would you describe this frontier and your work? And if you want to introduce yourself and your work, that'd be great. Yeah, um, look, so my name's Andrew Hughes. I, I research into um, political marketing and advertising. Uh, I look at the intersection between um, marketing and advertising from a commercial perspective into politics, um, non-profit perspective, um, how it's applied, how it's used, but also the changing and evolution from old school and heritage media into the new school um, media we see now through uh, digital and social media. So things like you know your Snapchat, um, your Facebook, your Instagram, LinkedIn, um, Google websites, all that type of stuff. So just how it's used for communications, um, but also then how it's uh, opening up opportunities for a lot of minor parties and independents to have a stronger voice than they've ever had, a lot more deeper engagement than they've ever had, um, but also then how it might raise question marks over who might be interfering, as it were, or influencing the outcome of elections. So I guess so. this low-cost entry um, is enabled... Has, has it democratised democracy or...? Yeah, it has in a way, right? I think it has. Yeah, good point, Tom. Um, it's really opened it up to um, anyone out there who... You don't have to set up a party first up. This is the thing. You can actually set up a Facebook group in seconds and that can become a party and evolve into a party. So if anything, it's made the party formation process quicker and easier because um, you don't have to go through the AEC anymore. I mean, you do to be registered formally, yeah, but at the moment you can start a movement really quickly, um, you know, in seconds and then away you go. And so I think it's leading to a lot more diversity and strength of points of views from all perspectives, be it far right to far left. And so we've just had the uh, 2019 federal election. Um, Is there any examples of that that you saw during the election or anything you think was noticeable about this digital phenomenon? 
Yeah, I think I think the way um, Facebook was used um, so quickly by a lot of um, smaller groups to, for micro targeting that was really noticeable. Um, often only came to light because of something they did and said. Uh, obviously, from the more media perspective of you know controversy or opinion or whatever the case was. But I think there's a lot of other groups who used it as well to organise and engage with not just volunteers but also people in the community. So uh, the National Party did it pretty well in 2019, I think. Like a lot of yeah, yeah. I think a lot of grassroots work. Um, um, now comes out of social media, so it was really well how they did that. Yeah, it was, it was quite noticeable. I, I give them credit. The Nationals actually held their ground against pretty strong opposition from One Nation and Shitters, Fishers and Farmers and um, and even Independents. If you think about it, the National Party is the one party in Australia most under attack um, from all sides. So they fight Labor, they fight Liberal Party in a way, they fight the Greens, they also fight um, people like Pauline Hanson and, and Catter and Independents. Whereas the major parties really only battle at, usually against each other or the Greens, it's usually against Labor. So, yeah. So can you, so how did they, how did the Nationals do an effective job in that sense? I think just the way they ran those Facebook pages was very much letting them non-scripted approach, very authentic and natural. That's the thing about social media. You've got to be social on the media. Um, and they do that quite well. <laughs> you know, you've got to be friendly and talk to people. Whereas some of the bigger parties, because they are so big, but they don't put the resources behind their, their social media, they're not engaging properly with people. They're not really out there talking to people. If you put a comment online right now to Anthony Albanese, where is the day he'll reply to you directly? It might be one of his staffers or his team, but where is the day it's actually him? Whereas with the National Party and I think some of the more country and regional-based independents and minor parties, it's usually them themselves replying to you. Um, not all the time, granted, but a lot of the time it is. And that more direct engagement is important to most people. There's no barrier in the way between you that way and the politician or the movement. So that way you can actually become part of the movement a lot quicker. So can you actually sort of quantify the connection between that type of engagement and electoral outcomes or votes or... Yeah, you can. I think you can. I mean, it's obviously hard to pull apart one cause in politics. And I think that's that's the issue with politics in itself, right, is that looking for the silver bullet, as it were, to describe a cause and effect can be quite difficult. Um, and it can be quite markedly different from one electorate to the next, because that's the way just people are. And um, I think you can quantify it, though, in the regional areas. We look at how well the National Party did in those areas, even though I've been very quiet during the campaign, that a lot of that came about through more grassroots social media style engagement and that's why they kept those seats where they're up against you know the bigger parties or even the independents who are quite strong that's sort of ironic so like even though social media is very global <clears throat> it comes with the big tech yeah. all over the world it's kind of local yeah local phenomenon if you do it effectively yeah right. yeah it, it should a lot of people I think where social media goes wrong with people they rely upon it too heavily is the only way to get a message across they use it for too many things at once right. they try and bang it into everything from advertising to engagement to relationship building to um, you know getting volunteers organised it can be those things for sure um, but the more you do I think the more risky run of being seen as confused about what you're actually doing oh, that's interesting so how does it compare with say um, how does this operate in the United States do you see people learning from the United States or do Australians have their own way of running these type of campaigns or 
Yeah, see, in the US, I think they have the money behind them, the resources behind them to run it really quickly. If anything, what we've seen is one thing out of the US is speed. Speed is everything, right? I mean, it seems obvious for social media, say speed, but I think the minor parties and independents, they do really low production stuff because they just rush it out pretty quick. They want to be on the hot issue and be first there and be the pioneer or the you know one of the lead comments or opinions on that topic, be it good or bad in the mind of people out there. But speed right they already put the message out really quickly where the major parties are thinking about it what response they need to come up with how it should look and appear to all their different segments whereas the minor parties because they have a more narrow segment more narrow target as it were can then just go right let's just bang it out 30 second video one minute video here's a meme um here's an image we'll just make it put up we don't care how it looks but upsets you know 90 percent of people what do we care 10% 10% of people love it, and then those 10% of people will vote for us. Right, so you can almost track the engagement on video, for yeah. example, to um, correlating with outcomes, yeah. potentially. or that's And that's the key with any communications and politics, or any communications full stop, is engagement. Because engagement equals attention, attention equals you watch it, it goes into your memory. Right. If you think about any ad you can recall, the jingle or whatever the case is, even if you don't buy that product, it's gone into your memory because you like the ad which means it's stuck in your head for that reason, that you like it. And that yeah, means... But unlike YouTube, whatever, I've just got those skip ad things, like, oh, yeah. they didn't get me because I put skip ad. <laughs> is that really the case, or is that not really the case? Or Yeah, yeah, no, it can happen like that, right? You can, you can skip ads, right? But it, five seconds is, is a short period of time, but all it takes is around two for something to go into your memory. Oh, okay. So five is enough. So I'm not really dodging it. I think I'm like... Get ah, oh, they didn't get me. I skipped it. Yeah, but in fact, that's a set amount, which is cognitively is enough to get into the hippocampus and and into the forebrain and stored in your yeah memories. Oh, right. That's it. Yeah, and, it, and look, and it goes into short term memory, but then it's a question mark of whether it re- is retained for medium to long term memory. So you're an expert in, in advertising <clears throat> as well. So yeah, it- cheers, Tom. You're making me feel good here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm blushing. <laughs> Where's Paul? It's not just a heater. Mr. McFadden wouldn't like that. Um, so, uh, uh, so is it is the same principles of advertising apply in, in online advertising? It's just become a digital phenomenon, or is it is it different to what old school advertising was? It's all the same. Right. Yeah, the principles are the same, which is you have to get someone's attention. And that hasn't changed since day dot of advertising. You've got to keep and hold someone's attention. What's changed is the information background. So I suppose back in the day, there wasn't a lot of information out there. There was, you know, only TV and radio and maybe print. Um, whereas now, of course, we have a communications device in our pocket most of the time. Most days of the week, um, we walk around the phone in our pocket. So before, um, we'd only access communication either in a car or at home, uh, maybe if we're out with a print. But now... It's on demand. Like, we demand the content when we want it. So what's changed is now it's demand-driven. Right. So people, you know, in the past, used to have to wait for the supply of information, the 6 o'clock news, the 7 o'clock news, the daily newspaper, the weekly magazine, as it were. Um, They're all based on supply of that information. So we had to wait for that information to hit us. So what's changed now is that how information is, is given to us is on a constant drip feed, if you want it. Right. In fact, people complain about having 
having too many notifications on their phone. They turn off social media. We've got screen time devices now where it lets you know you've been on your phone for too long. So that's the big change in information, how we consume information. So it's harder to get your attention now because all those competing things, plus all the stuff you have to do in life normally, means it's really difficult to get your attention in that first five seconds of a you know dynamic video. Right. And you spoke earlier about uh, sort of uh, micro-targeting. Yeah. And I guess, and direct messaging. If ah, so so yeah. micro-targeting is like locating, <clears throat> looking at someone specifically and, and tailoring your message based on the information about that person. Yep. And then I guess like what we call DMs or direct messaging in like your text phone. Yeah. Your text or um, into your <clears throat> somehow. Yep. I mean, like famously we saw uh, um, UAP, uh, the, the Palmer Party, yeah. This most recent election, sending people texts saying we're going to get rid of direct texting yep. to people. Is that right? Yeah. Well, isn't it funny? It's that they're campaigning for something they actually did. Right. But it, it got people talking. Right. So the other the other theory is that if I get you talking, if I get your awareness, as it were, I capture that awareness through your attention towards the brand, it means now you're talking about me and not someone else. Right. So you're considering and thinking about my brand more than someone else's, even though it could be negative. Right. This is the other rub to it all, is that most of the time we think of politicians, it's negative. It's not a happy thought. It's not a positive thought. It's actually quite negative. Right. But the theory goes on that is that if I'm talking about Clive Palmer a lot more than, say, someone else, it means that someone else now has to compete even harder to get through that clutter of information right. Right. to get your attention. Yeah, it's funny how information use across the world is quite universal. Um, and even some of the lessons we learn about how information can be used in politics is picked up from different regimes across the world who we necessarily wouldn't associate with democracy or freedom of speech, but yet they know about how information is disseminated and looked at and uh, digested by people. So even the way um, we look at propaganda used by the Nazi regime in World War II, right, a lot of lessons out of that because they did it so well. Um, they had so many people on board and they did it really well using some really simple techniques and that simplicity of how we digest information is something sometimes we lose in the modern era people think we want more information because people you know are information seekers but that's not true at all right if you think about it um, like that, you know, the yellow, you know, wave, as it were, by Clive Palmer, one thing he did really well is simplicity of the information. It was right. easy to digest and get into. And so that's why we talked about it a lot compared to the other parties around, like the major parties um, who are doing their complex policy discussions and whatnot. They're aiming for government. Clive was aiming for attention. That's a huge difference in objective. Right. And so Clive got his, his objective met pretty easily. But it meant that the two major parties were then forced to become a lot more um, detailed about their policy discussion, which then led to them probably being tripped up a bit with their information. So you think about how, again, going to that point about you know China, um, you know, other parts of the world where they do the information dissemination so well, um, parts of Africa, for example, where they do it really well, India and Indonesia, where it's very um, simple messages because of they can't use video a lot because their IT network and infrastructure isn't at the level of a first world nation. And so they struggle with that. So things like WhatsApp are very popular or direct messages or text even, because because they're very effective ways of doing political campaigning still in those nations. And I think we can lose that in this country, but what also signifies simplicity of information. Keep it simple and you get people into the message. And once they start into the message, half your battle's done because then they're engaged with the message. So that's like an advertising technique as well. Yeah. Sense. 
um, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. And and see, that's the fear is that if you can work that out, how to sway someone or persuade someone through um, how information is presented or given to them, then you can actually sway someone's opinion. And I think one of the lessons learned out of 2016 in the US, for example, was if you influence a narrative in politics, that influence gives you the chance to then influence the outcome of the election. So you don't have to influence um, someone's vote. You influence them how they think about an issue. So, for example, it could be, um, you know, pick an issue in, the, in America like gun control. If you influence the attitude towards that, that could sway their vote because of that um, attitude towards that issue, not because of the attitude towards the party itself. All right. So can you unpack that a bit? Like, yeah. An example of how that... So say, say, um, say, Tom, you've got, you know, lots of guns at home and you love gun... <laughs> <laughs> you've got gun ownership right and and um, that's the big thing for you right it, it's it's not the part you're not going to support oh, a party right. a broad based platform anymore right. it's now based on does party X support my use of my oh, guns okay. at home because it's localised to you it's what's in it for you right and what's in it for you is to keep your guns at home to have a nice secure house or you know a safe job so those things become the most important things so what I have to do now is influence your issue or your sorry your attitude towards those issues right so if i say hey i am party x and i'll let you keep your guns at home for as long as you want you're more likely to vote for me so what i do then i target my message down through social media so i can target just you specifically on those three issues which matter the most to you based on your prior history on social media uh, so it's, it's the, we talk about our identity politics. That's sort yeah. of identification. Correct. So it's about how you identify with that party yeah. or with. Yeah. So you just want to go. Oh, there for me. If send on that on the vote. Perfect. Okay, right. And and that's where the influence comes into it. So if I can influence. So how do you stop anyone else on the social media from influencing that narrative? It's really hard. Right. So if I want to play, you know, a bit dirty and a bit evil, all I have to do is influence then and go, hey, I'm not party X, I'm group X. And I'm a movement of concerned citizens who want to stop, you know, gun shootings in America. So this is what I think you should do instead. And I'll run a big social media campaign. I'm not running any candidates in the election. I'm not seeking government. I'm seeking influence. And to seek influence means I don't need to seek government anymore. Uh, I can influence your attitude via social media. That's a new weapon. So the best ads are making really ads, really. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, but they still keep those simple, basic principles of communication, as it were, and persuasion learned from all those decades ago from different countries and regimes across the world. Right. So simplicity of information or um, the use of images, virality of information, I think all that sort of stuff is still there. Um, You know, you look at anyone from, you know, Castro in Cuba to uh, like Che Guevara, for example, how many people who are young radicals wore Che Guevara T-shirts all the way to how the Chinese, you know, Communist Party did their revolution so well. It was simplicity of information, getting people engaged, not on a broad-based way of thinking but probably on individual issues which you connected to so it's been there for years it's been there for decades it's just probably what we're seeing now is the digital age means it's been transformed to digital methods to do that and i guess so think about the past but looking into the future like i guess the most prominent election we're going to be sort of confronting there's a few elections in australia state level in the next couple of years yeah um but i guess the united states 2020 what do you think is what how the technique is going to change from 2016 we're going to see new techniques or same old story? I think we'll see new techniques because um, the social media companies are changing algorithms now. 
and that means you change the algorithm. This is the thing. This is the intersection of digital and politics, right? right. Is that an algorithm can decide on the outcome of an election now. Right. And a lot of people miss that, I think. A lot of people don't have that as part of their discussion because either they don't understand that, right. they're old school, and so their old way of thinking is, you know, based on old heritage media or maybe policies matter or things like this. But it's not based on, hey, if I change an algorithm how you search for information, I can out- lead to an outcome of an election okay. being quite different. That's, I think, a be critical part of you know the next U.S. election is if those social media giants so wish and so desire to change their algorithms, they can actually influence the outcome of the next election. Wow. Okay. So think about that because you're seeking for information. Like you might Google gun control. So you're on Google. Oh, Google's right. a private company. Right. They're not publicly run. They don't have a public, you know, vested interest. I mean, they. They say they're part of the broader community, yes, of course, but also they're a private company. They're they making money. Advertising as well. Yeah, it's a vicious circle, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. So, so there's Google AdWords and stuff like that. I'm not having a crack at Google at all. I'm just saying that we, we, in a way, because we use it so much in our own everyday lives, we forget the influence of those platforms and how much they control now our everyday lives through information. So, can, so what's an algorithm is essentially a, a computer program which. We think about if that, then this. So if yeah. you say, if you do this, then I will do that. Yeah. And I guess like the, the Google algo is famous. What's the best metaphor to explain the search it, engine? It's probability, basically, in a nutshell. It's like the odds of you... So they rate the, um, the websites based on probability of you needing that website to solve the question you've got into the search engine. And that's Simple as that. Started with like, it's sort of like a soccer team where they pass balls to each other. So the person who gets yeah. the most passes, the centre forward or whatever, seems to get the highest hits. So Correct. It's sort of a self-replicating. Yeah. Model. Right. So then. Yeah. Um, so if you change the way that that functions, then you can alter people's opinions or position, frame or shape yeah. the way they see an issue. I guess like gun control. Yeah. It's so, so and this has been in a way you might you know, tap this onto the shoulder of behavioral economics where it's about nudge theory and how it can push you towards a certain choice. It's not pushy, sorry, but nudge you towards a certain choice. So what's by... an example of what's nudge theory like? Okay, so um, example of nudge theory. So I put um, at the front aisle of every, you know, supermarket aisle, um, fruit and veg. Right. Then you, you're going to see fruit and veg. Or if I put the chocolate at the middle of an aisle and healthy choices around it, I'm pushing you towards a certain choice or nudging you towards a certain choice. I'm not making you make that choice. You can still buy the chocolate. Right. But if the muesli bars and health food and fruit are next to the chocolate, you can be start thinking to yourself, hang on, I should maybe reduce my sugar consumption and buy less chocolate and just get an apple now. Because I always thought that that fruit and veg at the front of the was sort of to make me feel as though I was in something that was fresh. It wasn't just... It was to sell the other... Sort of that's part of it right. yeah that's right. part of it for sure it's it's reinforcing your behavior as right. being a good behavior like so you've walked in and you've done so, the right thing so supermarkets are the best <clears throat> example of they're kind of use algorithms too right? yeah, yeah of course yeah. yeah like every time i go to the shops everything i want seems to be on special which kind of creeps me out yeah like does that mean i, I shop at blah 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 and it's plays at this time what are you saying about yourself tom <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you've been followed yeah. <laughs> clearly um, Tuna's on special or whatever every time. But um, yeah, so um, yeah, so it's the same for how you might make a choice in politics then. In yeah. Sense, right? yeah, correct. Yeah. It's marketing, you're in yeah. marketing as well. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, exactly. So that's the thing, right? So if I change the algorithm, I could nudge you towards a different choice. Uh, okay. So instead of, say, I'll put gun control on top of my Google search thing, instead of coming up with maybe NRAA or you know, shitters, fishers and farmers here in Australia, it might then spit out a different search result. It could be anti-gun control people. So what I might be doing is getting you to think about your choices as a person harder than what you did before. Because uh, okay. you're to think the most relevant information is about doing something opposite to your current behaviour. So that questions your behaviour, which then challenges how you might vote. And that could then lead to an outcome being far different to what you predicted it might be. Uh, okay. Yeah. Clever, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so... And that's the thing. That's that's back in the one of the early days of Google, um, the the search results used to have percentage probability to what you're looking for next oh, to them. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, remember that. And now they've gone right. They've they've disappeared. Yeah. And not many people noticed the change, right. and not many people cared about the change. But I think it was quite relevant at the time yeah. because it did reveal how likely that website oh, was yeah. meeting your query for your search. But now it's gone. In a way, I think it's also disappeared. Because, I mean, who goes down to page 12? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you like page one, page two, and then the red bit, you're like, oh, I don't want to look at all those ones underneath. Yeah, no, no university student ever. No, <laughs> it's only page one ever. <laughs> well, I guess Wikipedia's like that too, because there's, there's political fights on Wikipedia about how you edit that. And See? Yeah. It's, it's amazing that because information is data now, it's numbers right. on a screen or it's letters on a screen, it's, it's code on a screen and I think you know maybe one of the the better things of the old days so to speak or the heritage media and this is where people go to media ownership and control and stuff like this is that it had different options you had newsprint you had TV and you had radio owned by different people so therefore more likely to see diversity of opinion but now with algorithm searches and our quick demand for information things becoming very efficient yes you can find something in seconds now on the internet usually anything you want but at the same time we're not questioning where that information comes from who wrote it what reason they had for writing it all that type of thing so we just take it for granted and that's why we have the era of fake news for because if i can influence you that quickly and easily you'll be less likely to challenge whether you're not even thinking about whether who wrote this story why who's this website no context that's right you know you might go okay newspaper x like the australian oh okay well you know they're they're this sort of people or The Canberra Times here in Canberra I like this, or the Sydney Morning Herald's are like this. They take this perspective. So you could buy one paper of each, you get a balanced view. Um, but on the web, it's harder to you know have that same discernment of information or perspective or who's writing this from what angle. So I think it's a little bit harder to seek that out. And as you said, sometimes a company can't be um, on page one because they're not paying Google enough money. Right. So they're on page five. Right. And that could be the most relevant perspective, right? That could be the one you're looking for. Right. And, and you might answer your question perfectly and it might be well written and quite, you know, fair and all impartial, but it's on page five because... That's why no one reads my articles like that. <laughs> That's why no one reads mine. <laughs> I'm usually on page 17. Hey, Google, yeah. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> so I get... Because we're in old Parliament House, like, what the... Like, coming to the past... Um, 
obviously had the legislation in terms of media legislation. Yeah. But, but what a government's up the hill uh, could do now, because that legislation obviously doesn't fit anymore, apart from its obvious implication, old-timey broadcast and legacy sort of media. Yeah. What should governments be doing with regulation and law around social media, for example? Well, then I think they need to look at things like algorithms on search around election times, um, probably all the time, or around topics anyway, like around certain topics or keyword searches. Right. They should be doing different algorithms to make sure that the information being given to people, as an example, is more balanced and fair than perhaps just a paid search result. Because if I can influence it through paying someone money, uh, then I'm influencing the outcome of a narrative which influences the election outcome or a campaign outcome or an issue outcome for that matter. So you mean a government should be really considering looking at going to the Googles of the world and the Facebooks of the world yeah. and saying, Let, let's see your algo yeah. and I'll test whether that algo is democratic enough it, for our society. Perfect. Right. Yeah. Because if you think about it, like you said before about that case of, of China and other countries probably do the same thing in a way, is you can you can um, doctor the search results so that the only information you see is what I want you to see. Right. I'm not saying it's up to other people to judge whether that's right or wrong, okay? But I'm guessing a lot of people would say, hang on, I'd like to see all the information available to me at the time because that way I can make a fair and balanced opinion. So then, but governments have the problem of, quote, free speech, unquote. Correct. Scare quotes. Yeah. It's like, so then, in order to effectively manage information in contemporary societies, we have to sort of enter, there's a paradox. Yeah, see? Free speech. See? Usually to. And so you might say, in a way, we're hypocritical when we focus on a couple countries of restricting their freedom of speech, when every country, in a way, does it. Because unless you're protecting that algorithm and that search, how do you really know you're getting what you should get? Right, and I guess big tech, you know, is is it the gaffer and the bats of the world? Yeah, like uh, they're international. Like they don't really even comply with. How would you like the servers are not necessarily even in Australia? Yeah. Um, See. So even the physical infrastructure could be, and the algorithms are certainly, you know, copyrighted, IP'd, probably, you know, exactly. Islands or Ireland or something. Yeah. Yeah, if anything, Cambridge Analytica, when it was exposed, one thing it did expose really well was the reliance upon um, an algorithm or a quantitative model, as it were, to predict our behaviour. really revealed that quite well, that yeah, you can predict human behaviour quite well yeah. on the net with all that data and information, but also that means you can influence it yeah, by using an algorithm, and then I can build a search pattern really you know, specifically for what you're after, um, and it becomes an echo chamber, as it were because then you're only getting information you think is relevant to you and that reinforces your existing opinion and so it doesn't challenge it at all. It just makes you feel good about yourself and away you go. But you don't know that maybe there's a different opinion out there which could give you a counter-argument or a more balanced view which might get you to think harder about the issue. Interesting. So in terms of prediction, I noticed that um, you're looking at the big clock up there. Thanks for your time today, uh... Thanks, Andrew, and uh, really great to chat about this. Thanks, Tom. Anytime, mate. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. That's this week's episode of Password123. Don't forget to join me next fortnight for another episode. And for more information, just Google UNSW Canberra Cyber. I'm Tom Sear. Thanks for listening.